Well, my final guest today is a best-selling author and one of Britain's most successful broadcasters. He currently presents a weekday radio show on LBC Radio that attracts huge audiences and receives massive attention. Known for speaking his mind and for holding strong opinions, he's railed against many of the biggest issues of our day, including Brexit, which he thinks was a crazy decision. He's just written his second book, How Not to Be Wrong, The Art of Changing Your Mind. He's in Dublin for the Dorky Book Festival. And yesterday, in a packed venue, I had the pleasure of interviewing him. And James O'Brien joins me now. Morning, James, and thanks so much for joining me once again. Well, thank you, Miriam, for, for today and for yesterday. Listen, this new book, it, it's, it's different to your first book, which was a huge success. It's much more personal, isn't it? It's, it's a fascinating insight into how you really changed yourself and your life. Tell me about that. Well, yes, the, the, the first book was really about why other people ended up holding opinions that didn't really stand up to much scrutiny. And the, and the scrutiny is obviously what, what I do on the radio. And it, it was it, it, it could have come across as a little bit mean spirited at times, because even though people ring in voluntarily to, to, to defend their pungent opinions and then turn out, of course, if you ask, you know, better than I do, if you ask the right questions, then the strongest opinions can fall apart quite quickly. It's a bit of a spectator sport, you know, it's a little bit gladiatorial. So when I came to write the second book, I thought I'd turn it the other way around and try and identify a few things that I believed or that I thought I believed that caused other people pain that were hurtful to other people, people who I knew or people who I didn't know, and then then try to dig into them. And and it it was was a consequence of, 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 of quite a long process. Of, of going to therapy and unpacking my own personality in the hope of becoming a happier, healthier person. And you were the kind of person who would have, well, you wouldn't have really believed in therapy, would you? God, no. I, I mean, I'd have laughed my head off if you'd ever told me that I would even cross the threshold of a, of a therapist's door. I was, I was a bit of a, of a, of a kind of cliche in, in that I was a, a man of a certain age and a certain background who thought that a stiff upper lip was, was, was a mark of masculinity and that vulnerability was for the birds, the, the, the winged variety, I should, I should stress. In that <laughs> um, the, the notion of, of not being able to deal with pain was anathema to me because I didn't think I felt any pain. I, I, I thought that, you know, mental resilience and uh, pull your socks up. It is a, a PE teacher at prep school. who used to say it is. It's not. It's only pain. It doesn't really hurt. And I sort of carried that mantra through life like a lot of people do. I was, I was the sort of idiot that even questioned some of some mental health diagnoses or some special educational needs diagnoses. I would have been the kind of person you'd have seen on the telly or the radio say, well, we just called it naughty in my day when, when you know, a kid has ADHD mm. or, or oppositional defiance disorder or, or, or manner of um, conditions that, that can be identified and, and can therefore be addressed. But I was a great believer in, as I say, in just sort of fronting everything out with your fists up. Tell me about when you did go to therapy and, and you you came mm-hmm. across this wonderful woman and she asked you to think about you as a 10-year-old boy. Well, it works, I think, for everybody on uh, for whom it works on, on the principle of digging right back into your childhood to, to find the points at which you began to assume inauthentic personality traits, so at which you began to, in my case, sort of put on armour in order to defend yourself from, from what you were feeling and in order to convince yourself and those around you that you, you were absolutely fine. So, you know, the kind of people who would talk about corporal punishment and say, well, it didn't do me any harm, because what they're not, what they're not doing actually is 
justifying it for a future generation. Someone who says corporal punishment is fine, it didn't do me any harm, isn't really endorsing it for a new generation of children. What they're really trying to do is convince themselves that they didn't suffer when it happened to them. But of course they did. And, and what therapy does when it's good and when it works is, is take you back to the moments when you started working very, very hard to falsely convince yourself that you hadn't been hurt. So, I mean, she said to me at the first session, if, if, we, if we decide to work together, then at some point, hopefully, if it goes well, you will talk to your 10-year-old self and, and, and tell him about where you are now and, and, and what's going on. I thought she was crackers. I thought she was absolutely crackers and there was no prospect whatsoever of that happening. And then in, in the second session, as soon as that, we're talking about being beaten. So I was at a prep school in England, which is a, a, a fee-paying institution, age 7 to 13, very sort of uh, Evelyn War type territory. Just, just that I started in 1979. It was very much the end of the post-Victorian era where all manner of horrors were occurring, we now know, in schools like that. And, and two of the teachers I had at that time are currently in jail. So um, it's, it's a story that will be familiar to, to, mm. to many, many Irish men and I, I, Irish uh, boys as well, because it was a Catholic school. And although it wasn't priests who were the uh, abusers, religion again became a sort of cloak or a camouflage for what was going on. But my, my abuse was very formal. It, it, it wasn't done in the shadows or done after lights out in the dormitory or anything like that. It was normal. It was part of the curriculum. And when you were uh, adjudged to have been naughty, and, and I can remember one or two occasions when I hadn't actually done the thing I was accused of, which is possibly where my slightly irritating, burning sense of injustice comes <laughs> from. But you, you had to queue up outside the man's study, uh, go in one by one and, and put your hands out, and he would hit them as hard as he possibly could with, do you know, after yesterday's event at, mm. at, at Dorking, Miriam, someone came up to me and told me that they used to sell these implements that I described in, in an ecclesiastical outfitting shop in Dublin. Wow. Um, and they were called biffers, apparently, according to one of the audience members yesterday. And, and it's like a, an extra thick, an extra thick slipper sole. And I, we wondered on stage where on earth the man mm. would get that in the 1980s because there was no internet. But apparently you could get something similar in, in ecclesiastical outfitters. And, and he would hit you as hard as he could. And your little hands, and I say little because in, in my mind I'd forgotten how small I was. You know, when, when I was sitting in that room doing this, mm. one of my own children, one of my own children was around the age I was then. And I, and I thought of her as tiny still. So you, you, he batters your little hands until you think they're going to explode. And then you have to say, thank you, sir, and, and walk out again, which was a commonplace experience, as you know, for, mm. for, for thousands and thousands of, of children. But it, it, it was at that moment, well, the, the therapist then just simply said, that must have hurt. And I felt my old defense mechanisms kicking in. I'm about to start saying, no, 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 you don't understand. I, I deserved it. I, I had been naughty. It didn't do me any harm. And anyway, it's character forming. And the lessons I learned in that study that day turned me into the into the thick-skinned, resilient man. And uh, none of that just, it didn't, it, it was almost like the like the spark plugs weren't firing, you know, it just, mm. it didn't, it didn't kick, it didn't kick in. And I, I just, I remember just saying to her, yes, it, it really did hurt. It really, really hurt. Um, and she said, tell him. She said, turn to that. It was a cushion on a sofa. She said, talk to that cushion as if it's as if it's 10-year-old you. And to, I mean, nobody's shocked more than mine. I did. And it felt like the most natural thing in the world. And she said, tell him that he's safe now 
and tell him that you will look after him. And I did that. And I, I mean, I know it sounds a bit sort of, I don't know, Californian perhaps or, 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 or overly simplistic, but I, I just, I just felt this enormous lifting of pressure that I had been carrying around without knowing like a really heavy suit of armor is the only way I can describe mm. it without knowing, without knowing I was wearing it. And there was still a lot to do and a lot to talk about and a lot to explore and a lot of what the therapists call work, a lot of work to do. But in that moment, something shifted. The way I sometimes describe it is you've lived your entire life in a, in a house and it's a nice house. You like the house. In my case, I was, you know, had a lot of great things in my life. Um, but it's, it's, you suddenly discover after 45, 46 years that it had a beautiful garden that you'd never been into. And and that moment for me was when the door to the garden opened. And it's the same house. It's the mm. same me. It's just a blooming great garden that I can run around in whenever I want. Which is lovely. You, you, your parents as well. You're adopted, James, um, by Jim, yes. your late father, who you adored, and your mom, Joan, who's still alive. But you felt there was a real betrayal of them as well, didn't you, in, yeah. in your entire education? Because they sacrificed. It was expensive to send you to these good schools. You went to Ampleforth as well. I did, yes. And I, I didn't realise that, of course. But it, it's like a sort of curdling inside you. You have to come up with these ever more sophisticated um, justifications and, and, and defences because you can't admit the pain, almost the physical and the psychological pain. But being sent to a school like that by a family who were not rich by any stretch of the imagination, I only really appreciated after my dad died the scale of the financial sacrifice for, you know, an ordinary middle class family to send a son to, to one of the great public schools. You couldn't do it now. The, the, the wages haven't kept track with the fees. And, and it was such a huge chunk of his income and, and of course, mum's as well income. And, and what what you carry there is this combination of privilege and guilt, which doesn't make sense logically. If, if, it's, if it's such a privilege to be here, which is drilled into you, it consciously and subconsciously, and the sacrifice, if it's such a privilege to be here, I can't possibly be miserable. I can't possibly be unhappy. I can't. Well, that, again, you know, I was happy a lot of the time and I had great mates and lots of wonderful things happened. So perhaps a better word is suffering, mm -hmm. suffering sometimes. If this is such a wonderful privilege, I mean, my school had a had an eighteen hole golf course, Miriam. I mean, it, and, and you, you won't believe this. It had a pack of beagles. You could go beagling on Saturday with the school beagles. I mean, there's this privilege coming out of the taps, and you just don't know. You don't realise that because it's all you know. And the context, or the, the the even the concept of suffering, would be anathema because that would somehow subconsciously involve throwing it all back in mm. in, in your mum and dad's face. So when I wrote the book, I was worried mum might think. Um, that I'd let her down or that I'd betrayed her. But of course, she's a mum. And so all she cared about was my happiness. And she and, was delighted that I found more, you know. And and a wonderful mum, as you were saying yesterday. Mm. Now, you when you went to get your Irish passport, <laughs> I gather you know that your birth mother, who you've never sought out, by the way, but she's Irish. Yes, I, I, I'd, I'd always been conscious. I was given up like many men in the 60s and the, well, many boys and girls in the 60s and 70s um, by, by a young Irish girl who, who was 16 when I was born, 15 when I was conceived. So, um, you know, the trip wow. to the mainland, I don't know. I don't know what story would have been told at home, whether it was the full truth or whether there was a, a, a variation of it. But these girls came to England and had their babies and, and, and handed them over to, to nuns usually and and went home. And I'd always known that and I've never had any 
insecurities or, or, or doubts about the unconditional love that mum and dad gave me. And the, and the way that it was explained to me was always that it was a wonderful act of love because your biological mother couldn't give you the life that she would have wanted for you. So she gave you to us because mm. we could give you that life. And they, that, you know, she found out about us and she had, had an element of choice in the decision of which parents got it. And also I'd never had this aching hole inside me that a lot of adopted people have, but I, I, I did always have a nagging fear that my birth, my existence might have caused her, unhappiness or, or, or caused her perhaps even a, a kind of separation from her family. You know the stories mm. about disapproval and God knows with the Magdalene laundries and, 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 and all that kind of thing that's come out in recent years. It was a rational fear that I had that, that I might have been a sort of um, a, a, a disaster for her domestically and, 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 and emotionally. So I was digging in for my Irish passport and found all the paperwork in mum's attic at home and, and just put in my biological it would be my biological grandmother's maiden name because i had their i must have been possibly their wedding certificate or my biological mother's birth certificate no it must have been a wedding certificate because her maiden name on it hmm. um, and the married name and i just put them both in on google because you know i, I, I was just i wasn't even thinking to be honest with you i just thought crikey i never knew that before i'd never seen that document before and up popped her funeral notice um and and her daughter my biological mother was very much present at the funeral with her family members and still lived in the area where she was living when I was conceived. So it, she'd clearly not been, you know, thrown out mm. by the family or, or, or been ostracised by the community or anything like that. And and that just, again, it was like a settling of, of cement almost. It just something I hadn't even known had been a constant in my life. A constant question and fear inside me had been just fixed. And, and bizarrely, I, I still have no particular... You never know what's going to happen. You never know. She could be much. listening to you now, James. I know she could, but equally she could be listening with a husband who knows nothing about me. Mm. So I don't want to turn up in anybody's life like a hand grenade just out of curiosity is the point. I don't want to do anything just out of curiosity. Uh, I, I'd like to say thank you and that you did the right thing, but that's a yeah, it's a big deal. And, mm. and, and, and it, it's certainly more on the table than it was before now that i know everything is um nice and and and, and comfortable for her but I, I i'm very very conscious of turning up as i say like a firework mm. in somebody's life and and for all the stories we see on the telly about wonderful tearful reunions there's an awful lot that don't go like that yeah. so some of them sort of some of them fizzle out and and some of them of course become problematic and of course you have your own wonderful mother as well joan listen That's part to me of it. James, it was really so lovely to talk to you again this morning after yesterday. Your book, How Not To Be Wrong, The Art of Changing Your Mind by WH Allen. It's in all bookshops. It's a fantastic read. People should buy it. Thanks so much for being my guest this morning, James, and safe journey home. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you so much. Mind yourself. And lovely reaction to James. I'll just bring you a few because I've hardly any time left. Ellen and Wickley says, Miriam, enjoying your chat with James. He's a brilliant radio presenter, keeps Boris and his government under pressure and asks the tough questions. Pierce says, James, sir, you are a legend, a believer in truth, equality and fairness, a voice for the good when many around you are seduced by the politics of division, discrimination and the promotion of the it's all their fault mantra. Never, ever give up, James. Um, Ye vagabonds, dear Donegal says, I saw the lads from Ye Bag 
Vagabonds do one of the first pandemic performances for other voices in April 2020. They were magnificent and gorgeous people. That's Jeremy and Donegal. And then back to Brian and Owen McCraw. Uh, Dr. Tom Clonan, I think, sums it up. He says, I'm listening to Brian and Owen in West Cork as we pack up to drive back to Dublin. What a beautiful interview for Father's Day. Very moving. And I might have had something in my eye. Fear in talk. Well said. Well, that's it from us for today. The programme was produced by the series producer, Cora Ennis. Caro O'Hare was on sound. Our broadcast coordinator was Taryn O'Sullivan. Stay listening for Brendan. Have a lovely Sunday. Slán. Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1.